All Lewis did was freeze, petrified, like a frightened stag at the dawn of photography. His ruddiness, his sparkling eyes, his animated personality were not captured on the film. Only a death mask stillness. This is Pints with Jack, Season 5, Episode 7. Lights, Camera, Jack. After Hours with Norman Stone. Good morning, everyone. Pints with Jack is your weekly C.S. Lewis podcast where three friends, Andrew, David and Matt, break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. This season, we're talking about love, slowly working our way through The Four Loves by C.S. Lewis. But today is a Thursday and an After Hours episode. The quotation at the beginning of this episode comes from biographer William Griffin, describing the impossibility of capturing Lewis on film. Well, in today's After Hours episode, we'll be speaking to a man who has spent his career pretty much doing just that. Today, we're talking to writer, director, producer, Norman Stone. Norman Stone has a master's in film and television from London's Royal College of Art, and he's the head of 1A Productions. He has worked with many of the finest names in the acting and filmmaking worlds, creating a wide range of productions, from top-class television dramas, series and documentaries, to music videos and big-screen movies. Mr. Stone has won many awards. He is a double BAFTA and Emmy Award winner, most notably, at least as far as we're concerned, for his work on the 1986 version of Shadowlands, a movie which tells the story of C.S. Lewis and Joy Davidman. Throughout his career, he has worked on several other Lewis-related projects, namely Beyond Narnia, The Narnia Code, and most recently, the movie starring Nicholas Ralph and Max McLean, The Most Reluctant Convert. Norman Stone, all the way from Great Britain, welcome to Pints with Jack. I'm very happy to be here. Where's the pint? (laughs) It's in the mail. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds messy. (laughs) We'll talk a little bit more about it later, but before we go any further, I have to offer my congratulations regarding The Most Reluctant Convert. It has just been doing so well at the box office. Yes, it's uh, rather um, unexpectedly in some ways. I mean, uh, the one thing about my good friends, the Americans, is they have vision and they have scale (laughs) and they have size. Um, This wasn't shot as a feature film. It was shot very beautifully. I had a a great crew. Uh, Sir Kenneth Branagh uses this crew and it's a top-notch affair. And I had a very good cameraman. So the, the, the pictures absolutely stand up. But the intention was to, I don't know, go on a streamer or broadcast company or, or, or video on demand, which is coming soon. And then they came up with this wacky idea to put it on cinemas, which I love, of course. I do cinema sometimes. Um, and I thought, okay, but that not that sort of a little extra from what we'd anticipated? And then I got it, of course, because... When you make a feature film, it's a, just a sad fact that they often need as much money um, spent on the publicity as they do to spend on the actual budget of the film. It's a weird mm-hmm. equation, 50-50. In this case, I thought, oh, that's clever. They'll be getting the word out. People will be paying to come and see the film, sneak preview and all that, and they will be doing great publicity and word of mouth without costing them a bean. In fact, they may even make a mild profit. Uh, I get that these Americans, that's good. Well, what happened was just crazy. You may or may not know people listening, but it was uh, meant to be a one-evening event um, across the country, 300 cities, often with more than one cinema in the city. Um, It ended up 500 cities. I didn't know you even had 500 cities, but there we are. Um, (laughs) And it just went crazy. We became the second most watched film in the whole of America that evening. Uh, Second only to Dune, you know, D-U-N-E, the big blockbuster, Um, which means uh, we beat James Bond. Hurrah! (laughs) Yes, Lewis beats James Bond. (laughs) So, no, it's gone just crazy and it's been extended and extended again. It will be on video on demand sometime in the near future, but it clearly has hit a a button or a, so- a soft spot in uh, American interest. And there's an, one could have an interesting discussion as to why that is, given the state of the world today. But um, now is probably not the time. So now I'm thrilled to bits, of course. And uh, it seems to keep on growing even now. So, um, yeah, uh, it is an extraordinary event and I'm delighted to be part of it. Well, it is wonderful to have you on the show. So thank you for taking the time to sit down with us. Uh, I'm currently enjoying a nice cup of Yorkshire gold tea. I'm on uh, Tesco coffee. (laughs) (laughs) 
uh, from a very special mug, you told me. What is the significance of this mug? Ah, yes. Well, this, um, I couldn't have, people are meant to buy me these things and rather than me buy one, one myself, but it says Ace Grandad. I've just become, in the last six months, I've become a double granddad, two grandsons. One um, was born, actually, while I was on the plane flying to Los Angeles. Not with me, of course, back in Britain. Um, <laughs> messy. Thank goodness. Um, yes, and another one was six months ago um, with the extraordinary name of Wolfjack. So wow. he's now wee wolfie. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> Anyway, so that's so I'm in a very happy state of mind anyway. And then what happened with the film was just um, a joy. It was one of my favorite films I've ever made. Well, that's toast to the health of your grandchildren and your own good health. Cheers. Cheers. Oh, very good. So would you mind telling us a little bit about your background and how you got into film? I am a strict and particular Baptist son of a strict and particular Baptist minister who was a son of a strict and particular Baptist minister, and we didn't watch television. Heavens, not even film. So um, if ever you wonder if God has got a sense of humor, he has. Um, <laughs> because uh, to take a different angle in, which is probably the more um, useful one, at the age of three, my grandfather on my mother's side told me a story. He sat me on his knee and he told me a story and I was electrified. I saw pictures and I can see those pictures now in my head, two quite distinctly different styled pictures. And because of those pictures, many, many, many decades later, I can remember the story quite particularly. And I was just hooked on stories and pictures from that moment on. I'd race to my grandfather's knee every time. He, he made up these <laughs> Christian parables or whatever they were, or just it, it, adventure stories. And I just loved it. You had a similar-ish experience with, I believe, Narnia. But basically, from that point on, he died when I was six, but I, I always blame him for making me a director uh, because it, I could see pictures and I loved the story, and that's what I've been doing all my life. My mum used to say, um, when are you going to get a real job? And to be honest, I never did. Uh, it's just good fun. Uh, hard work, but great fun. So stories and pictures is how I began. I went to art college, worked my way through the various options, but I already knew I loved stories and pictures. So as soon as I got a chance, I made films. I then went on to the Royal College of Art, which is purely for film and loved that. And then I was very fortunate. I got offered uh, a job at the BBC, mainly because I had a film they wanted, they thought they wanted. Um, and I got a job as their youngest producer director at the time. And I just loved it. And what's more, you get paid for it then. And you've got a free <laughs> television license. So what could you say? <laughs> so uh, I loved all that. And then I've done nothing but make pictures or and films and tell stories all my life. I am the most spoilt, rotten kid you'll ever come across. It's just been very, very good. I made hundreds, actually, probably about over 200 counting series uh, of programs and documentaries and animations and various things i started for kids and then i went deeper so that was good yeah it's noticeable the range when i when i told my mom that i was going to be interviewing you i sent her the cliff richard documentary that you worked on because oh, sir cliff was one of my mother's all-time favorites <laughs> and and my wife and i are avid whodunit fans and over the past year we've got Britbox on amazon so i've been subjecting my wife to all of the British TV that I grew up with. Yeah. And we've been working our way through the classic Miss Marple. And ah. we enjoyed both the episodes that you directed without even knowing that you were the director. I did the last two. That's right. That's right. Yeah, of season three. Now, yeah. is, is that kind of variety usual in your line of work? Or are you just exceptionally lucky? It is usual, I guess, if, it, if you like stories and pictures. Um, <laughs> I have had people with a sensible bent of mind saying, for goodness sake, when are you going to specialize? And my speciality is to watch people's eyes go. Have you ever told a child a story and you watch their eyes go? I have five <laughs> kids. And when I say they go, I remember asking two of my sons, my first and second son, they must have been about six and eight at the time. And I told them the story and I was saying something about a giant with a big green coat and uh, 
bushy beard, hurtling down towards the fire at the bottom of the hill. And I stopped and I said, and what socks was he wearing? What colour socks? And one of them said, green. And the other one said, orange. And do you know they were both right? Isn't that fantastic? <laughs> that they can see that same thing that kicked me off all that time. And they're both involved in, in film now. In fact, my oldest son has just finished directing Doctor Who. So oh, it, wonderful. It's obviously, uh, it's obviously contagious, this enthusiasm for stories and and uh, so be careful what you tell your grandchildren. You might be making out-of-work directors before you know it. Okay. Well, let's talk about Lewis. Where did he appear along the way for you personally? Well, I didn't grow up as a child of Narnia. Um, but, of course, I knew about C.S. Lewis. And I'll tell you where. It's a strange reference. I did a film about a blind and deaf Cornish poet called Jack Clemo, C-L-E-M-O. He's in The Penguin Poets. Brilliant wonderful excavating poems of power and uh, strength that you wouldn't expect. And when I heard about him through a group that really helped me in my early years called the Christian Arts Centre Group with a man called Nigel Goodwin, he said, you should make a film about this man. BBC at that time, where I was in the department I was, was not making dramas. So I sent a researcher off and he came back and said, um, it's a really good story, but it's a drama. I said, Steve, uh, sorry, but, you know, we don't do dramas here. M worse luck. But go off again. So I paid for him to go off again. And he came back and said, it's even better. You should see what I've discovered. But it's a drama. And I said, for goodness sake. And in the end, I made my first drama for the price of a documentary, which is probably about an eighth or a tenth of the price that a drama would be normally. And it succeeded. And it got an award. And I noticed the response of the audience, quite specifically for this guy, he hadn't heard or seen for 25 years at that point. And he was the closest, he was a Christian, and closer to God than anyone I've ever met. But why did people take him to their hearts so much in this dramatized uh, way? It was because I think he'd been to hell and back. He'd earned the right to be heard. Mm. And when he said things in his faint, lilting Cornish voice, because he was still obviously deaf, and, and he, he spoke in a certain soft way. But when he did that, people picked up, and quite rightly, he was a very wise man. He died now. And I thought, that's it, of course. If you earn the right to be heard, a phrase that I've adopted through the rest of my life, um, if you earn the right to be heard, then people are going to be wanting to hear. Who else do I know, having won an award and done well with that and gone freelance rather um, suddenly? I wanted to go and do all these dramas. And I thought, who else? And it took me about two and a half seconds to think, ah, C.S. Lewis, <laughs> of course. <laughs> because I knew, obviously, about um, Claire, I, I nearly said Claire Bloom. She was my Joy Davidman. Um, uh, and, and Joy Davidman and the whole relationship and then Lewis's mother dying of cancer and then the woman he finally loved dying of cancer but getting better thank you god no smash crash i mean he earned the right to be heard right yeah. so read a grief observed is probably one of the greatest books he's ever read but it's pretty tough stuff oh, and yeah. it isn't singing happy little clappy hallelujah courses <laughs> at the end which i think again people out there ordinary folk let's call them open-minded humanists or haven't quite thought what i am yet they pay attention at that sort of thing you're not painting fake smiles on people hmm. and god is the brightest star at that point when it gets that dark so i think that was the beginning of shadowlands it took me a few years to get that going i'd done a, a film with jonathan price about martin luther and uh, when the chance came to go up again it wasn't a very good pitch well what's it about norman well it's about a a, a man who falls in love with this woman uh, who gets cancer, gets better, gets cancer and dies. Yes, well, we were thinking of doing John Bunyan, actually. <laughs> I mean, it was a bit of that. But I, I said, it's a great story. So in the end, we did, and three of us from that BBC department, a man called David Thompson, who took over all of BBC film and made it what it is. Good for him. Good man. Bill Nicholson, now known as William B. Nicholson, writes all these great things and makes great films. This was his second script and we all turned up for breakfast every morning on the way to the BBC and discussed it through. And eventually, uh, for a very small fee, 
I think it was 300 a week I got pounds. Um, and uh, they allowed it to get made and we were allowed to do what we wanted to do the way we wanted to do it. Uh, there's extraordinary stories about that I won't bore you with now, except perhaps one. And that is Steven Spielberg was going <laughs> to Oxford to make the young Sherlock Holmes. You can edit this out if you wish. Oh, no, no. I actually had a question about this. I've, I've heard this story and I wanted our listeners to hear it too. Okay. Well, it's true. It was, it was, we were all ready to go. We could only afford the Welsh film crew to have four nights in a hotel before going back to Cardiff to film it as if it was Oxford. And let me tell you, there is very little other than a desert to look more like Oxford than Cardiff. It, it does not look like Oxford. But we couldn't afford it. So we went into film knowing that the big Steven Spielberg show would be knocking us off every street corner and we couldn't do this and couldn't do that. And as we went in and as I approached Oxford, it started to snow big half crown sized uh, snowflakes and then it got heavier and heavier so we got in there and I'm thinking goodness how are we going to do this because if it's suddenly snow which turned out to be a godsend it had more atmosphere than anything and the other godsend was the next day Steven Spielberg announced that he couldn't shoot uh, without his fake snow, because it will melt or come again. Yes, that fake snow. But the Pantechnican lorry, a huge lorry full of fake snow, had got <laughs> stuck in a snowdrift on the M4, which is one of the main arteries in Britain, and couldn't reach Oxford even. So we had a blessed four or five days completely free of uh, the Spielberg um, machine. And indeed, we had to go down the, uh, <laughs> the streets with flamethrowers thawing out the, the ice and the milk bottles on the doorstep and all this sort of thing. Um, and we, 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 we did it with great enthusiasm and, and probably less skill at that time than we should have had. But it was a great feeling from the word go. We were up against the odds. Everyone pulled two and it was great. And that did have um, a pretty massive effect when it came out and got me my first BAFTAs and Emmys and things. And your C.S. Lewis was the gravelly voiced Joss Ackland. Yes, isn't that interesting? Joss is a wonderful actor and I've worked with him before and since anyway, uh, once or twice. He was in one of those Miss Marple episodes. Yes, he was. Yes, he was. Stony Gates. That's, that's right. Um, now, Joss is great, but it's interesting for this. We often try and make people look exactly the same. And the classic point is in this latest film, Max McLean, morphs into Lewis. He really does. <laughs> Thanks to a particularly skillful makeup artist who shaved his hair back into a widow's peak and all that. But he really suddenly turned up looking like Lewis. And we think that's important. And to a point, yes, it is. I like that to be the case. And Nicholas Ralph looks just like a photograph from Lewis in his earlier years and so on. So that we try for that. Joss Ackland doesn't look like Lewis at all, but he understood him thoroughly. His friend, Professor John Wayne, said of Lewis, um, he has a face like an Irish butcher and a voice like a booming cannonade at sea. <laughs> and Joss Ackland has those. Oh. Uh, and he just poured himself into that and he should probably have got uh, the BAFTA along with Claire Bloom for that. There was a reason he didn't have to do with other politics, but there we are. Yeah. No, Joss is easily one of my one of my favourites. And he's still today just fantastic. I was actually watching him on YouTube earlier this morning. <laughs> is he is he on youtube freak i mean new no he was he was really it was uh it was a letter i think to the world or a letter to young people or something like that he was basically offering this inspirational message in the only way that joss ackland can it's it's funny because i in my head i've listened to his version of the screw tape letters now so many times that's the voice i hear in my head when i'm reading screw tape ah yeah well he's very good at all of that i visit he wasn't too well when i visited him last down in uh Dorset or somewhere like that down in the, in the West Country. Um, but anyway, yes, I'd love to, I must give him a call. So Joss and Claire did it extremely well. The crew were hungry. They just had to sit in Cardiff and wait for bits of drama to come out of London if they could grab them. And they just poured themselves into it. Again, it's such a team action making a film. And it was certainly so in this one, the most reluctant convert, because... Um, Without that crew, I'll tell you what it is. The key, the key central point is that everybody has to make the same film. Mm. 
And if they do that and climb on board, you're suddenly picking up velocity because everyone is after the same thing. And you may have noticed that the crew themselves appear in this film uh, up, up at the front. Don't want to give too many uh, spoilers. But the <laughs> fact that they did that and were keen to do that and they've been phoning up as our film, they call it. Yes, excellent. That is when you really pick up speed and go somewhere. Well, we'll, we'll get to the most reluctant convert in a moment. There's two other uh, productions that you've worked on that I want to talk about first. The first one is C.S. Lewis Beyond Narnia. And much of this was filmed at Lewis's home, The Kilns. And like The Most Reluctant Convert, it's a docudrama. It blends scene dramatization with into-the-camera narration. And Lewis was played by another actor very near and dear to my heart, the late Anton Rogers, mm. whom I grew up watching on the comedy show May to December. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, he was a lovely guy. And indeed... Uh, he took to Lewis again. I think there are certain people who get Lewis quickly and some people argue with him and, and get him a little slower, maybe. But he picked up and did it. I mean, again, he wouldn't look particularly like Lewis, but you look at him in that film when he's in the Burden Baby pub leading the Inklings <laughs> and they're all sort of... Uh, I, I was quite pleased with that scene. We had about two minutes to shoot it in, but it was it was great. This gaggle of... Overgrown schoolboys on one way, and yet brilliant academics and creative writers in another. That, and enough that bedlam came... that reminded me of Parliament. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I, I, what gives me joy, because I'm a warped creature, um, is to know <laughs> that the professors of his time, and they mocked anyone who believed in God a lot at that time, and the fact that Tolkien, who hadn't published anything much at that time, and Lewis, uh, would meet calling this corny little name The Inklings. It sounds like a jazz band, but it, they, they would laugh and say, oh, there they are with their talking lions and, and little elves, <laughs> and they'd walk away. Well, they used to meet in a part of that pub called The Rabbit Room, which was fairly small, but you used to get stuffed with people. And if you stretch your mind and think of a square acreage of that room, square it by square inch, that is probably the most rich, financially rewarding area, certainly in the whole of Oxford, probably in Britain, because all the feature films that have poured out of that <laughs> little mind idea, Talking Lions, and of course, the elves and the dwarves, um, that's amazing. And it all began over a pint, yes, Jack, and also free talking and challenging each other. As iron sharpens iron, so the wits of men sharpen the wits of men, says the good book. And I think that is probably never more true than in creative writing. And mm. um, that's what happened. And it, isn't that great? It's sort of get your own back time and say, ha, ah, so <laughs> where's your books now, you cynical professors? You know, I, I enjoy that. We've had Dr. Diana Glyer on the show uh, with talking about her books, Bandersnatch and the Company They Keep. And she spends a lot of time talking about the creative environment that the Inklings managed to create. And it really is unparalleled. Yeah, I think so. Um, and, it, you know, I knew when I first started my career, it's weird, um, and I started with the BBC, as I explained, and I was given a children's show. It was the first morning television for children ever. And the religious department said, well, make a, make a children's show. And I said, to do what? I was very suspicious that they might want me to grind down my Christian beliefs to some sort of grey amalgam and excuse everything away. And they said, no, just just tell people about, tell kids about Christianity. I said, are you kidding? Really? And, and, and what restrictions creatively? None. Do what you want. So I made this nutty series called The Sunday Gang, which had a, a mouse puppet in a parrot cage in the corner of the studio and the Sir Lancelot somebody or other with a slightly oval table. It was just nonsense stuff with four presenters. And that worked really, really well. Now, the, one of the writers of that, I used to give out sketches or stories to tell, uh, I turned out to have been as a young man, he used to go up to Oxford just to sit in with the Inklings. He was a young writer um, and he knew what was going on and he scraped together his pennies and took the train to Oxford every time there was an Inklings thing and sat there. I mean, it's that near when you think about it. So he wrote this daft stuff for my kids' show, but we talked a lot. And he really said the value of that was unbelievable. 
as we all wish we could be there ourselves, of course. And yet, and yet, you see, the people also, you've got to stress it. Everyone, Lewis, Tolkien, I'm sure they've all got their faults and failings massively. The danger of making them into sort of a stained glass window subject matter mm-hmm. doesn't really ever do them justice because part of their part of their wisdom is their fallenness, the fact that they notice that and speak about that, Lewis in particular. Yeah. Uh, so... I forget where we started, but that's where we finished. <laughs> that, no, no, it was great. Uh, we began with Lewis talking about Jesus and we ended up with mice talking about Jesus. Uh, <laughs> we've had Dr. Michael Ward on the show to talk about his books, Planet Narnia and the Narnia Code. Can you tell us the story of how you ended up working on the associated documentary? Uh, yes. Um, there's a... A friend I'd known for ages in New York, and when I didn't have any money, which I still don't really, he used to let me sleep in in his apartment with his wife and kid, and uh, it was a, I'd sleep on a shakedown mattress or something. And his name was Eric Metaxas, who has uh, got infamous or famous a bit more recently. Um, in fact, I saw him when I was across New York uh, this time. I may disagree with his politics quite much, but he's a great guy and very funny and very incisive. Uh, he used to edit the magazine in Yale when he was a kid, or a kid when he was a student. Anyway, Eric uh, was writing things and interviewing things, people, and he said, "Oh, he said I've got this lunch um, where I'm meant to meet this American, this English um, academic called Michael Ward. I'd never heard of him at that time." He says, "But I really feel so bad," and his voice was croaky. And he said, I don't know what I've got, but it, I can't make conversation endlessly with this. He, he croaked pathetically in my direction. Would you come? <laughs> You're a talker, Norman. How true. Could you come? I said, is the, is the meal free? He said, yes. I said, <laughs> so we went to this nice restaurant and Eric croaked and made a few notes. But I was fascinated because what I discovered, if you've met Michael Ward, you'll see how unusually... Um, both accessible and deep he is, and great fun. And he became a close friend. He's got this book coming out called Planet Narnia. And the more I heard about it with my background in in uh, in Lewis, because I'd taken a great interest in him since Shadowlands, um, the more I thought, hang on, that's extraordinary. To get a long story short, Eric claims it was him. I'm not so sure, but he said, hey, I've got a director of Shadowlands and I've got the guy with a new book. Make a film. Anyway, <laughs> either way, I took it to the BBC and the man in charge of commissioning had an attraction to that. I think he liked Lewis. So we got straight through the BBC in a very uh, um, simple fashion, very unusual. Uh, so we started to do it and we went everywhere. We went to rediscover Paddy Moore's grave in the uh, cemeteries of the First World War. We went everywhere. And I'd already shot a film called Beyond Narnia for an American company. And I used some of the drama that I did there to to, to lift in the directions that the, the Narnia story, Narnia Code story, was actually... Um, exploring and i think it worked quite well it certainly cemented our friendship forever me and spud as he likes to be called <laughs> yes um and at the same time it was a new approach you don't get many new approaches to lewis but that was a really interesting one with the socratic method of um instruction uh, it sounds awfully boring but it isn't it's a fascinating area that the uh lewis is writing on two levels at least two uh, when he came up with the Narnia, Narnia Chronicles. So, yes, that's how I did it, through having a free meal and uh, <laughs> an open ear and the BBC saying yes. But it was good. So I used him, as you know, in this current film. I couldn't not, could I? I couldn't resist. No. It was perfect casting as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, I wanted to give him a gift of what he, something he really wanted, so I gave him hair. Actually, as soon as he finished filming the the sequences with the vicar, who he plays at Headington Church, uh, I noticed it. Bing! It was on. It was on his website, uh, on his (laughs) social media, and there was this sort of very dapper man with a head of hair. Uh, We loved it. Absolutely loved it. 
but he's good fun. In fact, I'll be speaking with him again in the new year on some couple of things. He's very bright, very clear, and very intelligent. I remember scrolling through Facebook the day that, that appeared, and I was scrolling past, and I didn't recognize him. And I literally <laughs> scrolled past it, stopped, went back. It's like, why does this guy look familiar? And sort of like placing my hand over the screen as to where the hair is. It's like, oh my goodness, it's Dr. Ward. <laughs> yes, I think he enjoyed the whole thing. So that's good. And I think you gave him a very interesting gift, considering that the most reluctant convert has beaten James Bond, because his other big claim to fame was, of course, handing James Bond uh, a pair of X-ray glasses. Oh, yes. And now he gets to be the vicar in, uh, in an even yes. more popular well, movie. One of uh, Hugh's minions, wasn't it? That's right. I remember. He was very proud of that, too. No, there's more to come from Michael Ward. Watch out. He'll be on, our way, on his way soon. It'll be in the next Mission Impossible movie, I bet. <laughs> yes, Lewis Impossible. <laughs> but anyway, yes, that was that. I, I feel I'm wandering a bit, but you cut me off if you wish to. No, no, this this is great. Uh, we've heard from Max as to how he began this process of uh, The Most Reluctant Convert as a movie. Uh, where did it begin from your side of things? Um, I knew Max about eight years before maybe nine, I met him at a Christian arts uh, group in our festival, or whatever it would be, convening uh, in Santa Monica. Uh, I think I'd been aware of him, or I don't think necessarily met. I'd probably been at churches in New York where he stood up and read the message. He's got a great reading voice, absolutely fantastic. Anyway, we go, when I'd be in New York, I'd, I'd look him up and we'd have a meal or whatever, whatever. Um, he's pure theatre. I don't do theatre. I'm pure film. He doesn't do film. But we share the same impetus of energy, dynamism, and, and let's tell stories. So that's fine. And suddenly, out of the blue, I'm sitting right here in this chair, and the phone rings, 7.30, 8.30 at night. And Max is driving down to Charleston or somewhere. He's giving a, a performance of this one-man show called The Most Reluctant Convert, which to my shame, I think I may have heard about it once, but I hadn't taken any notice of. Uh, and he said, Norman, I'm just thinking, I think he was bored actually driving down the, the freeway. But he said, I'm just thinking, <laughs> do you think this this one-man show of mine is going really, really well? Do you think it'll ever get on a screen? And I said, Max, I've not seen it. And I, I don't know, but basically it's all in the script he said i'll send you it i'll send you it we talked on a bit more put the phone down i thought oh dear what have i done because i like <laughs> a lot and sometimes it's a bad idea to give people you like the freedom to send you a script and if it's dreadful you know mm -hmm. where do you go from there so he sent it and bingo it was on my desk within days and i avoided it for two days and uh then <laughs> slowly opened the envelope and read it and it was fantastic it was fantastic for two reasons one it was all lewis's words and he, second thing, he has a masterful tailoring technique, like a little tailor, C cutting Lewis's words, not out of context, but together and, and stitching them together. And you yeah. really get the emotion, feeling and information about Lewis as a real person rather than quoting some distant text. And I thought, this is fantastic. So we met, but we, no, we didn't, we, we talked on the phone. Uh, on Skype was his favorite calling point. And he said, well, look, this, this is great that you like it. But so what do we do now? And I said, well, you've got three, cha three choices. You can point a camera at the stage play and take lots of shots of audience cutaways. In other words, you take your viewer to the theater. And, and that's fine. It, you will see the stage production. And when the audience have gone home, we can go on stage and take cutaways. We edit it all together and it could work but I'm not interested in that. He said, no, I understand. And I, yeah, I could do that, couldn't I? He said, yes, you could. Please do. I didn't feel any great pressure to force him to, to offer it to me or anything. I said, that, he said, what's the second? I said, well, I've done a lot of one-man shows, which I have with some very good actors, Jeremy Irons among them. And they love actors being the sole person there. Occasionally you have other people uh, as extras, but they're the only ones that talk. I did a Dostoevsky short story with with, with Jeremy uh, called The Dream of a Ridiculous Man, and it did very well, and it was an experiment, and I loved breaking the fourth wall, and then I made a bunch more, did a series of seven with other actors, 
you'll have heard of, but basically I'd done a lot of them. And although they're dynamic, you do it on location rather than in a studio. You do it, uh, as I always say, when it's cold, the real breath hangs in the air. It's a real thing. And every frame has got to think of itself as a feature film. Now, when you do that, it's great fun. It's very pressured. You've got nowhere to cut away to. Rarely have you got anywhere to cut away to. So it's very imaginative, but thorough. I said, but I've done... He said, well, that sounds good. I said, yes, but I've done probably enough of them now. Uh, and I, uh, I, I'm not sure that attracts me. It certainly, it was a fresh idea. And he said, so what's the third? I said, ah. I said, that's the dangerous one. Now... If ever you want Max McLean to say, or anyone, I guess, uh, of a certain ilk, uh, that's the dangerous one. What's that? What's that? Like that? So he was immediately <laughs> wanting it, which was a lesson in persuasion to me that I'd never come across before. So um, he said, uh, well, what is it? I said, I don't know, but I can taste it and I can feel it. And I know it's just there to be carved out and discovered. So I, he said, well, well, tell me more. And we muttered on about it, the possibility of taking the one-man show much further and make blending uh, drama with um, reconstruction with somebody talking through the camera. And in the end, you know what it is simply, I'll give it to you straight, as much to do with Dickens as anybody. If you look at A Christmas Carol, which I've always loved, uh, and you see the spirit of Christmas past, taking the reprobate old non-yet-repentant sinner uh, to see himself as a little boy in a Christmas left behind. I always felt that that was more emotionally powerful, packed more of a punch, because because Scrooge himself was there uh, watching him. And I thought, why hasn't that ever been really explored in film and television? So... I thought if we do that, if the man himself can go back in his past, and yes, you have the usual cutaways and reconstructions and so on, but what happens if, uh, what happens if he then starts to appear in his own memories? What happens if he starts interrupting himself or vice versa with himself as a younger person? What happens if, what happens if, and it was just like a, a great whoosh of creative fun. So we worked on that. And we did that, and it does work. Um, and it fits together in a way that catches you slightly by surprise sometimes, I think. It caught me by surprise. <laughs> but the, <laughs> the idea that we could tell a story that way and make it go further, go deeper, further up and deeper in, or whatever the quote is, um, <laughs> I think fitted the, the requirements of this most reluctant convert. Certainly, we took at least 80% of the script that Max had culled from Lewis's words from the play, but I had to rework them and go slightly, if you like, more 3D in its re reference. It isn't just a one written word book or one man show. It's got to intertwine and move together in all the visual shapes and the dramatic constructions. and the, It all has to work together, which I just loved doing. So after six weeks of doing that, he said, okay, works really well. I want to play him. He said he didn't want to play him. Thank goodness he did, except for the fact <laughs> that when he's about to step on for the first shot uh, in the film, and he's going to be, it looks very like Lewis, and he says, of course, I've never been on camera before, you know. <laughs> At which point, I think there was a, uh, I think we had to revive the cameraman. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, but he was great. He was spot on. He's a very good actor, and he just took to it. Um, and it was good in a way because he had to rely on us in a completely different medium, and it worked well together. We shared it all the way through. So it's lovely. I enjoyed it. Now, you spoke about the conversion process. And whereas Shadowlands, the movie, was later converted into a play, as you pointed out, Most Reluctant Convert was going in the other direction from a yes. play to a movie. Yes. And you were involved in that process so i was wondering how did you set about doing that conversion how do you decide what to show and what to tell what to dramatize and what to have the older lewis tell us about well when we did the original shadowlands of course you just do your research and you meet the people some of whom were still alive and kicking and are no more it was fantastic uh, to be able to do that 
And I approached it fairly Lewis free. As I say, I wasn't a Narnia worshipper as my youth, as I could have been had I opened the books and seen them. But I, for some reason, had not avoided them deliberately, but they, I hadn't, I wasn't a Narnia kid. So when I came to look at his life, and I was particularly interested in the death of Joy Davidman, but I'd started with his whole life. I've, he's written so much, it's wonderful. So I got into that. That was just telling a good story. Um, I initially started to do, as I say, his whole life. And when William Nicholson, Bill Nicholson, the friend, came in, in to write the script, he said, but that the core of this, you know, you're going to be overstuffed with, it's what a life. Mm-hmm. But the core of this emotional core is the Joy Davidman thing. So I said, you're right. And uh, we worked on that script. Bill wrote it beautifully. And the that was the original one where the Christian faith still had its proper place at the center, as opposed to the feature film one where Sir Dickie, Dickie Attenborough um, rather removed it because he believed that Christian faith wasn't really real. A beautiful looking film, but like a polished, shellacked, ancient, wonderful car that left out the engine. That's mm-hmm. what I- and there's, there's a reason that everybody refers to your Shadowlands as the good one. Well, it's, it's actually just more true to Lewis himself. That was what it was. So when it came then to doing this one all these years later, in fact, it was fortuitous, providential, some might say, that that script was already there. Max had already done an awful lot of the work for the, for the one-man show. Now, I wasn't filming a one-man show. It had to be a fully-fledged film uh, and, and enjoyable as such, but it was going to be a slightly different because it was going to use Lewis's words as Lewis, the script was already there in the show. I adapted probably 20% specifically more to make it work as a film. And it was a relatively easy thing to do. Once I'd got the focus of how I wanted to tell the story and adapted the script where it works, you don't declaim in film like you do on stage. But to get inside Lewis's head and make some of his words thoughts, or have him in a emotional situation at one point without telling him he's in emotional without him telling us he just we watch it happen then you get really close and really under the skin of the man so it wasn't a great breakthrough moment ah i know what i'll do it was already telling me itself he was telling me himself in that pure lewis words of the one-man show and it was a natural progression with a lot of creative fun, I keep saying, but it was in film. You know, we, we, we make our piece with um, the normal way we do a drama on television or even feature film, uh, because that's how it's always been done. Nonsense. It's a toy box. Why shouldn't we push things further? I mean, we have, what, 500 years of oil painting? Mm-hmm. They're still doing it on television. In Britain, when 1953, when the Queen got crowned, God bless her, uh, that's when television took off. That's nothing. That's 70 years or something. Hmm. And why are we putting our imaginations down so much and just doing normal, ordinary things when 500 years of, uh, of oil painting and we're still experimenting, doing other stuff as well? All I'm saying is, come on, guys, wake up, try some fun. And I've done it on one or two things. That's one of my favorite things to do, to mess around and try things in a different way. And in this case, it all came together and it worked. How did Nicholas Ralph become involved in the project? (laughs) You must picture me in the Trinity term. No, I mustn't quote that. (laughs) But I was seven days from shooting and I didn't have a Lewis, a mid-Lewis. I'd been a casting director so many times. I'd interviewed loads of people online. I did want somebody to have some visual connection with Lewis and uh, he didn't need to look like Max because Max is the older Lewis and changed. But I, my wife was watching television two rooms from here and she's a broadcaster and author and authoress and she knew what I was looking for and I wasn't getting it. I thought, what am I going to do? I hate having a compromise. And she said, he should be your, your Lewis. And I looked at the screen, and before it came to America, it was in its first run here in Britain. And there was all creatures great and small. And there was this actor, Nicholas Ralph, playing the main lead. 
And I just looked at him and he went, Dong! almost literally, because I remember there's a black and white photograph of Lewis sitting in a chair in his 20s, somewhere mm-hmm. between Nicholas Ralph and Prince Charles in his younger years. But it looked <laughs> like him. And I said, what? Who is he? Turned out, bizarrely, he's very good friends of some very good friends of mine. He lived in Glasgow all the time and I never knew he was there, which is where I live. But he was just there. Seven days before we, so I got in touch as quickly as I could the next morning, talked with him. He was very uh, open to the idea. He's been brought up in a, a church in Nairn in, high, in North Scotland. His parents were very involved in that, knew who Lewis was, etc. And I, I think we cast him on the spot. Uh, in fact, I probably only saw him, met him, because it was COVID again around at this time. I probably only met him on set but I talked to him a lot and he was great and he is great uh, and all creatures great and small has made him um, a legend in his own lunchtime I mean he's, he's really uh, done very well and will do more but for Lewis he was perfect he, he bridged that moment from the childhood to his big struggle against Christianity to deism to proper Christianity uh, and he understood it and he performed it well. I hadn't got one bad thing to say about him. He was perfect. And it fitted well, actually not looking exactly like Lewis the Older, because you you made that jump between there's Lewis watching himself as a young guy, uh, but you're not getting mixed up between the two. He was very, um, he responded brilliantly to the script. That's what I'd say. It worked. So, yeah, and he's a lifelong friend, I hope. Now, you mentioned COVID. What kind of challenges did you encounter shooting while the rest of the world is not <laughs> making movies? Financial. Financial. Do you know, in those days, you can get lateral flow tests and things easy these days. And, of course, I was just in New York where they've got stalls set up on the sidewalks uh, offering you these tests. Then, back then, it was a, it was a fresh plague and no one was quite sure where our far it was going to go and so on. But we had to protect the crew. Now, it was no longer a one-man show. Max has got all these things out. There was 192 extras, 280 costumes, uh, 15 main players and all that. It had, a, it had grown. But we had to keep them all safe. And do you know it cost £279.84p for one test? Woof. Now, that means that the amount of thousands of pounds, we could have probably made a small film on it to keep it there. We had one little scare where somebody looked as if they might have caught it, which case would have had to close the whole thing down. Max and his company, FPA, took a great risk by doing this. But we went out on the high wire and we got safely back the other side. So we, we paid the money. We took out, we had a Dr. COVID uh, coming around, spraying us and testing us and all this sort of thing. We did everything for people's safety and comfort. And we finished a very brief shoot, as it turned out. This should have normally taken about 40 days. I think we had 14 and a half days to do the whole thing. We were doing the second, we were doing the first world war in an evening after we'd shot something else in the, in the afternoon. Uh, it was essential that everybody was wanted to make their film being our film being the, this film, uh, which, and everyone just threw themselves at it. It was crazy, but we did it. And COVID at that point had closed down the industry of film and television. Uh, now you can't, you can't even find anyone to work on a film because everyone is making up for it and going crazy and making as many films as they can. But we were ahead of the game, which I worried about a little because they said they didn't want to bring it out uh, it finished in early, early, very early this year. And they said they wanted to wait until the summer was over, which I think is a wise choice uh, to, to release it. And they've done it. And that means that uh, it, an awful lot of people, it's got into a sort of a system of filmmaking, COVID-friendly, uh, and you can do that. But at that time, it was like we were on the frontier and there was no one else to be seen anywhere. But it meant that we had an awful lot of freedom with locations as well. Hmm. A very easy way of emptying Oxford. Yes. <laughs> and the occasional mask did appear on on, on, uh, on set, accidentally. Uh, it should be always on set, but on on hmm. camera. Hmm. Uh, so we had to edit around those. But no, it was 
it felt right. It had a following wind, and it was very safe as we could make it to make on not much money. And it all went. Sorry, Norman doesn't know how to spell. But it went pit pat pat. So if you see what I mean, it, we, we actually fitted together and picked up speed as it was going. I like to think also that Lewis himself would have been, he'd have been a bit self-effacing, I'm sure, mm-hmm. but he would have liked some of the fun and some of the uh, the depth that Max had put into the original play, which we kept in for the film. I think he would have enjoyed that. Well, there were quite a few little Easter eggs in the movie, which I really enjoyed, such as when Lewis is talking about not being raised in a Puritan home, and he, he's telling us this while he's walking into a pub. And particularly the one of the young Lewis enduring a Sunday service at church and all the congregation singing, all things bright and beautiful, all creatures great and small. Oh, you know, I roared like a drain, because <laughs> that's the name of the show starring Nicholas Ralph. Uh, you mentioned earlier about the the crew getting in front of the camera. Were there any other little nice touches or things that people might have missed or not know about uh, from their first viewing? Um, it, it's true. Goodness, I, I don't know what they've noticed in the first viewing, so it's difficult to say. Um, <laughs> it, it's true. When you get to be, and this is the biggest joy of it all for me, uh, it sounds selfish, but nobody told me what to do. You often have... Um, executive producers, super executive producers, people who've never made a film but tell you how to alter the script, all this. So I'd written the screenplay. Max had done the original uh, play. I'd written the screenplay. At that point, I was producing and directing, and then I had my freedom with editing as well. It was the best Christmas present you could ever have. It was just you knew in your heart, thank you, Grandad, for sitting me on your knee at the age of three, you knew in your heart how the pictures and story worked together. And I was allowed to do it within the restrictions of COVID and of not enough money and not enough schedule, but we would do it. And that was the deep joy of it. So when you get to editing, which I was had to edit at the bottom of my garden because you couldn't go into an editing suite or post-production suite at that point because of COVID. Uh, but I was able to do all the little hidden things as well with nobody saying, what are you doing that for? Um, because I want to play with this whole thing, and like you would do in the details of a painting, you'd put little extra bits in. No, I mean, you, you're right about um, all creatures great and small. That was just a bit of fun. And the, the, there's a line about the wise man, which we give to Max singing it as well. So there's, <laughs> it, it balances on that. And all the way through, there were little bits of, and, and Michael Ward's casting, yes. So on the, even on that, even on that hymn, all, uh, you know, all things bright and beautiful. I said, if anyone wants to be on this, because we we're about to film it that morning and we had a very limited shoot, a lot to get in in, a, in a one short day. Um, I said, if any of the crew want to turn up and sing badly, I'll see you just before we get on the bus and go. And they did, bless them. They turned up. And I said, you all know all things bright and beautiful. Well, I want to do it like a dirge, a real dirge. <laughs> uh, and they said, what? I said, yeah, just try it. Half speed, and they took to it like a fish. Oh, yes. <laughs> I mean, and that is what Lewis is on about, of course. He's saying mm-hmm. he, he didn't enjoy the hymns, are particularly disagreeable, and I made that one very disagreeable uh, to, to him. Um, and being able to do little things like that on set, and as well as in editing sometimes with the boys when they're young and and Richard Harrington being their father, telling them off. And we played around with stuff on that too. And all the way through there, there it's, it, it bears a second watch. And the idea of beginning the way we do and then ending the way we do, which I thought, I'm glad to say it worked. <laughs> it was a bit of a, of a risk in some ways uh, because Lewis is buried in that graveyard and mm-hmm. you had two chances with one drone to try and get it right. Uh, and, you, you know, I better not say too much about it. But, yes, it is full of clues and bits of fun. <laughs> well, every time I go online, people are always asking when the movie is going to be available to buy or stream online. Uh, I know this is going to be, you can't promise anything, but do you have any well, idea no, when this it, might be happening? It should have been done probably now, but it, people won't stop wanting to see it in cinemas. So, I mean, literally, it was going to be one day. Then it was extended until November the 18th. That's about now, isn't that something like that? Um, mm-hmm. And then it's been extended again. It may even apparently in certain places get extend into December, which I mean, is just silly. These things don't happen. But while that's all happening, um, 
the producer uh, uh, for, for FPA, the executive producer, if you like, Ken Dennison, has been uh, working away in New York, setting up the video on demand. So the idea would be, and I think it would be a great thing as a Christmas watch. I mean, we all watch at various times, um, Wonderful Life. Mm-hmm. But why not watch this year the the most reluctant convert? It has snow. It has Christmas carols. <laughs> it ends up very much in all that. And it would be a great thing to show for a family or neighbors or whatever around. So I would encourage them to quickly get it out on VOD, Video On Demand. I'm sure you'll hear about it. And it is that website that tells you everything, apparently, which is cslewismovie.com. I think it would be great to have that available in December or second half of December anyway. Because I do think, you know, I, I, I let them sing properly after giving a terrible dirge on that one <laughs> and the uh it's one of my favorite carols anyway that they do sing and it, it feels very christmasy mm-hmm. um, so i hope people can watch it then and and, and enjoy it a christmas treat no thank you so much for coming on the show uh, i hear the last call for drinks uh, so as we wrap things up where can people go to find out more about you? And do you have any suggestions of some of your work which people should check out? Oh, goodness. I've never been asked that before uh, very much. Um, yes, apparently on BritBox, I hear. In fact, BritBox, uh, hot news off the press. Uh, four hours ago, I got an email from a text from BritBox. They're very interested in another idea I've got, series. And I had a meeting with Britbox when I was in New York a week ago, um, and they seemed interested in the series. So it looks like they're taking a great interest in this particular one. It's called ROK, and it's an adventure series set in Gibraltar, of all places. But it's very British as well, of course, being that. But they bounce off all over the world. And I thought, why have I not seen something like a popular drama, a popular action series with a Christian at the center of it? It just... It's an interesting thought. So a special ops guy who is very good at killing becomes a Christian and a, a rather imperfect assistant minister. Um, and he gets posted out there because he beat up some pimps and things when they attacked him. So it's an interesting one. But all the way through, three characters, an empty materialist, a scientific rationalist and an imperfect Christian get together as this odd threesome. And if whatever issue turns up, let's let's discuss from the point of view they're at. Let's have fun and keep it action, keep it highly entertaining. But wouldn't it be interesting to have that? So again, just an, playing with the medium. So that's one that you can look forward to if it gets made. Uh, but the things in the past, oh, what have I got up on the wall here? Well, I did a thing, apart from Cliff Richard, who's there, uh, I did a thing <laughs> called The Vision with Lee Remick and Dirk Bogart, but that, that was a while back. Shadowlands, a thing called New World, about the discovery of America, another William B. Nicholson script. Jonathan Price, uh, the uh, Martin Luther heretic, a thing called The Justice Game, uh, which is all about gangsters. I did a, there's a poster over there called Man Dancing, another one about... Uh, gangsters in glasgow which was quite successful in its way uh the thing is i heard from britbox that and i've not tried it so i don't know but apparently because they opened the doors to all the bbc archives i presume you can call up various references to see if you want to see films well i've made scores of films for the bbc a whole string of documentaries quite a few dramas including the miss marples so apparently, if you buy BritBox, folks, you can apparently look at my past work. I've, I don't believe in Christian films. I've never seen a piece of Christian celluloid. I think that what is offered as Christian films are usually so substandard, I have to ask, how dare we offer that to God? Um, and, and often it's warped in other ways, too. But I do believe in Christians making films. And I think that is where the future has always and to quote Lewis again, he says, we don't need more Christian books. We need Christians who write books, which is a difference. We need more Christians who write books. I am a Christian who makes films and I would stand by anything I've made. So 
it's more honest and hopefully more effective and more fun. Consider me Saint Fun. I do like doing things. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Not so much of the saint, actually. But thank you for having me on. I've enjoyed it immensely. Ta- oh, you, shall I buy the next round? Absolutely. Okay. Thanks again to Norman Stone for coming on the show. Thanks to all of our listeners, our patron supporters, particularly our top-tier supporters, Bud, Shane, John, Kevin, Brian, Kay, Monique, Paul, Kimberly, Gillis, Gary, Stephen, Matt, Kelly, Chris, John, Kate, Peter, and Rowdy. Please check us out on social media and keep an eye on pintsforjack.com where we continue to regularly post bonus content. And please join us next time when we'll be going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.